Good morning. It's kind of a pattern. I like nature shows. If you watch them, predators try to separate weaker prey from stronger prey in order to be able to um, take them down. And um, this is what's happening in Corinth on a, on a spiritual level. Uh, Paul is coming under fire. He's being accused of being fickle and wishy-washy. His name is being dragged through the mud. And the problem is no one is coming to his defense. And this is dangerous, not just on a personal basis, it's hurtful to him, but it's, it's dangerous on another basis because if they dismiss him, they will dismiss as well the message that he brings, and that's catastrophic at the time. Uh, Paul knows that the welfare of the flock is at stake. He's a shepherd, and as you understand, a shepherd needs to do two things. A shepherd needs to be able to be good with the staff. A staff is used to, if the sheep fall on the back, it's to support the sheep and, and kind of lift them back up. The staff is for the shepherd's benefit as well, but then there's the rod as well. The rod is used to protect the sheep. And um, there was an article in your, we're not going to read it, about gentleness as it applies to uh, Jesus, a gentle shepherd, and Jesus was gentle as is Paul, is good with the staff, but when necessary, when it's necessary to protect the sheep, good with a rod as well. And that's what we find as we come to Second um, Corinthians. It's a letter where we learn a lot, and Paul tells us a lot about himself. We end up seeing into his heart. We'll see that this morning. Um, a shepherd needs to know how to use a staff, again, to provide personal support and to pick up the sheep. And a shepherd also needs to know how to use a rod to protect the sheep from predators. And this morning, we'll find Paul wielding both. And in order to promote both connection and correction, look what it says. We'll just work our way through uh, this passage. Uh, starts and says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so, towards you. Again, Paul's motives are being called into question, and what he summons to the witness stand are the expressions of his conscience. And he says a couple of things about the way he has conducted himself with the Corinthians when he was with them, and when he's not with them, when he's writing letters, he talks about two things, simplicity and sincerity. What simplicity and sincerity have in mind, what they have in common, is that both of them are overt. There's nothing hidden. When there's simplicity and sincerity, there's not veiled intentions or hidden motives. What you see is what you get. And that's the way it was with Paul. He was very straightforward in his dealings, either when he wrote a letter or in person. And this is what is being called into question, and that's why he defends himself. If you recall, some years back, we uh, Don Serska was a long-term friend 
of Hope Church. He, and Don was a guy in whom there was no guile. Don was very direct. I remember he, he was a, um, I really like, for some reason, I like fountain pens. And so Don loved fountain pens. And, and I went to visit him once and he had a bunch of fountain pens on his desk. And some were expensive and, he, and Don would do what, what J.C. did as well, kind of did the look over the glasses thing. And, and I remember Don talking to me and he goes, it's a sickness. You know, and that's what, no, he, didn't, he didn't try to defend himself. He got, it's a sickness. You know, I got this. Uh, and um, it's, we, we benefited from, from Don so much when we were coming into possession of this property. Uh, Don was the one who, um, whose counsel was invaluable. And Don's one of those guys, if he's your friend, you really are glad to be under his wing because if you're his opponent, Don knew how to use a rod and a staff. And we, we benefited from that. Um, and that's kind of what we, what we have with Paul. He was the same kind of guy, very direct, but he cared, and the people he cared for, he defended vigorously. His heart was tied to the welfare of the people that he was trying to protect. And what we're going to see, there's all kinds of emotion in his letter to the Corinthians. What they felt about him mattered. And so what he goes on in verse 13, he says, For we are not writing to you, anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. It seems what's happening, and again, what we've talked about before, these letters are one-way conversations. And so you have to try to figure out what's going on on the other side of the line. There are charges and allegations being made. Some of the Corinthians seem to have been misinterpreting and misrepresenting Paul's words and letters. It's like they take them and they microanalyze them to say, I think he's saying this and I think he's saying that, and not just taking just the plain meaning of what he's saying. And they're doing this, some are doing this in order to undercut his, their relationship. There are wolves in Corinth. And again, when Jesus talked, we've talked about this before, a wolf in sheep's clothing. When you think of what a wolf in sheep's clothing is, Jesus warned about them. A wolf in sheep's clothing, we tend to think about as a wolf dressed up like a sheep. You know, you think Wiley Coyote and Ralph the Sheepdog, if you remember those cartoons, you know, there was uh, Wiley Coyote and the, the wolf would kind of put on the little puffball coat and be, you see, you know, they'd go and get the, get the sheep and, you know, walk out with the sheep. Um, yeah, you, I'm sure you all remember that or that really a striking picture. Um, what, 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 when we think of a wolf in sheep's clothing, it's not, as Jesus describes it, it's not a wolf dressed up like a sheep, but a wolf dressed up like a shepherd. The shepherds wear sheep's clothing. And so the problem is when someone in a position of religious spiritual influence is using that position to be able to further their own agenda, 
rather than the agenda of those whose welfare they are to promote. That's what it means to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. And again, it doesn't mean that a wolf in sheep's clothing doesn't hate the sheep. So these individuals who are kind of misinterpreting and misrepresenting Paul, they're not doing so because they hate the people. A wolf doesn't hate sheep. It just needs to eat them. <laughs> Nothing personal. <laughs> I mean, I'm hungry, you're a sheep, I'm a wolf, and I need to eat you. So that's what's happening in Corinth. It's not that these individuals who are inserting themselves are hateful people, but they are undercutting Paul in order to be able to have their way with the congregation. Um, so they have been kind of misinterpreting, and, and, and Paul wrote in the same manner that he lived. He straightforwardly, they were in a position because on a missionary journey, he spent 18 months in Corinth. That's a long time. In fact, he spent more time in Corinth, 18 months, I think, that's his longest stay. He stayed a long time in Ephesus, but those two places weren't just stopover points, but he stayed there a while, and they had a chance to interact with him over a year and a half. And they knew what he was like, and they, they really should have known better. Uh, they witnessed his integrity firsthand. Um, he goes on in verse 15 to kind of get to the heart of what, it is he wants to defend himself on. He says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Um, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As sure as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes or no. Paul is being accused of being like the, the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to go to Corinth? Well, I think I will, but I think I won't. And that's what the individuals who are kind of impugning his character are saying about him. Oh, yeah, Paul said he'd come, but then he didn't come, did he? And all this is about some plans that Paul made to visit them. And let me tell you about what happened, just to give you some, um, some background. At the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he planned to visit Corinth on his way to Greece and from Greece. You don't need to know the geography of the place, just that where he was in Ephesus, he was going to visit them as he's going to Greece, and he's going to stop by on the way to Greece, and stop by on the way back. And when he comes back, he's going to be collecting an offering to bring to Jerusalem to help the saints there, and that's what he intended to do. Timothy, uh, before Paul was able to make this visit, Timothy visited Corinth. And um, he returned to Paul with a, a bad report. And he indicated, geez, Paul, things are not good in Corinth. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he addressed a lot of issues. And he wanted them to make some headway. And when Timothy came back and indicated, it's a mess. So what Paul did, he changed his original plans, and he went straight to Corinth. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, but all we know, Paul talks about a sorrowful visit. We don't have the details. 
But when Paul heard from Timothy what was happening in Corinth, he made this visit. It was very painful and very difficult. Um, So that's the sorrowful visit. And then when Paul left, things went from bad to worse. What ended up happening is there were in their house meetings, there were there was at least one individual and probably represented the feelings of several who started to criticize Paul publicly in the meetings, getting up, and they met in houses. And so somebody would get up and say, you know what, here's the deal with Paul. You know, did he say he was going to come and he's not? And so they're, they're starting to badmouth Paul. Now that's has happened. What ended up happening, though, and it was pretty confusing, those who kind of knew Paul, because this person must have been very forceful, just kind of sat there and, and put their hands in their pocket. So they really didn't defend him. And then what ends up happening? You know the way it is with gossip? Even when you know something about someone, when somebody speaks strongly in attacking someone, do you understand? You know what ends up happening? It ends up putting doubts in your mind sometimes, doesn't it? With respect to, I wonder if I really can trust this person. By the way, That's why gossip is so dangerous. When it comes to relationships between people, the thoughts of one person about another person, that is the lifeblood of relationship. When someone misrepresents or criticizes or spreads gossip about the integrity of someone and it gets into your brain, you know what it does? It erodes the relationship. Um, There was John Wesley. um, He had meetings in the 18th century and I remember reading once Wesley's five-point covenant. I said, that's kind of interesting. I wonder what he determined in these cottage meetings, he had a five-point covenant, and that everyone who was a part of this house church had to abide by and agree to this covenant. And so I remember looking at that and saying, I wonder what he would be so insistent about, and here was the deal. It was all about gossip. That's the only thing he absolutely put in place. He said, if, and I don't know exactly what, but they were kind of like this, if someone says something about someone else, you will be inclined not to believe it. At your first convenience, you will speak to this person about what they said, and you would try to find out the truth. And anyway, what it, what it said was, if somebody is, is going to spread gossip, that's the thing that can take down these cottage meetings and these house churches. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is very conscious of. When people are spreading these rumors, and that's a lousy thing, but when those who know to defend Paul don't do so, then the people are becoming very confused. And for Paul, this is not just a personal thing, as I said. If they mis- if they kind of move away from him, they're going to move away from the message. And that's what Paul is really concerned about. Um, So what he ended up doing, 
He ended up firing off a letter. We don't have this letter, so he made a sorrowful visit, and he wrote a painful letter, in which he corrected with just pretty directly、uh, what this person said about him. About their not really coming to bat for him, he wrote this page again. We don't have it. He confronted the congregation for standing by as the offender had his say.、Uh, he informed them as well. You know that visit I was going to make to and from Greece. I'm not going to make the visit too. And the reason they he he determined that it wouldn't be wise to do so, and we'll read in Second Corinthians about what they thought. Uh, but the deal is, he didn't want to make another sorrowful visit. It just tore his heart out. Again, when you think about it, he goes to these places, and he pours out his heart, and he implants a message, and he serves, and he works with his hands, and he's a tent maker, and he doesn't charge, and he he does all these things. And what ends up happening? Those who want to undercut his authority use everything against him. It would be maddening. So what they would like proving? Did did Paul charge you anything for his services? Oh, he didn't. Oh, you know why? That's because he couldn't, not because he wouldn't. And so they. Oh, geez, I I, and and that's what that's what's happening.、Um, it was used to impugn his character. Titus reported this, and so, anyways, that's why Paul wrote Second Corinthians. And so he is trying to clear up and help them to understand what happened because he knew it was important. Look what it says in verse nineteen, as he kind of starts to defend himself and the gospel. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for His glory, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us and given His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Notice, and again, Paul says a lot of things. You know what he does? First and foremost, he's under attack, but he doesn't defend himself. He defends the promises of God. Because that's what Paul bases his ministry on. It's not about God's commandments; it's about God's commitments, and that's what we find in the Bible. Faith is to be rooted in the promises of God. That's what we put our faith in. And when you think of, do I have strong faith or do I have weak faith? That is directly related to. Is your faith in God's promises? If it's in God's promises, it's strong. Would you agree with me? A little faith in an object worthy of faith is strong. If I have strong faith in something that really is not able to be trusted, say there is an individual who's not really good at what he does. If I have real confidence that this guy, who is a financial manager, Um, he's going to—he's really going to pull through, and I have real confidence. If the guy's not an effective financial manager, is my faith going to benefit me? No. Strong faith in a weak object is not going to work out. You can have strong faith, but if the object of the faith is not strong, then strong faith doesn't matter. Where, what are we supposed to put our faith in? 
God's promises. God's promises. His commitments, not his commandments. If we put our faith in God's commitments, what we'll find is as our faith becomes stronger because it's in God's promises, our ability to do what God wants will increase. You will not find a deep capacity to love by focusing on God's commandments. It just isn't going to work. What we end up doing is feeling judged. We're supposed to love. That's what we are to do. The ability to love comes as we focus on God's promises. That's why Paul does what he does. He says, are God's promises yes and no? No. God doesn't make a promise and then take it back. Extend a promise and then decide, "Mm, no, he doesn't do that. All God's promises in Christ are yes. The promises that Jesus comes to express, God will not take back. That's why it's so precious. He talks about, well, you know the promise. There's all kinds of promises. God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You know what God promises in Christ? Eternal life. And when our faith is rooted in a promise that has been made, weak faith in a strong promise, so say if you don't have huge faith, but your faith is in that promise and you keep it in your mind, weak faith in that promise and what's going to happen to you when you get to the other side. If you believe the promise, what's going to happen? You're going to have eternal life because that's the way it works. The problem is when individuals kind of move the focus away from promises to, well, I'm not a really good person and I, I, don't, I don't do the things that he tells me to do. So I guess I can't be confident that the promise applies to me. It didn't say God so loved the obedient that he gave his only begotten son. The one who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He didn't restrict who it is that applies to it. You know what? It, it applies to everyone. Not everyone will believe it. If you will put your faith in God's promises, what you'll find, your faith will become deeper and you will find yourself with a growing capacity to be more loving to yourself, others, and, and to God. And this is what Paul understands. Um, he defends God's promises, and after defending God's promises, then he, he kind of tries to reestablish his connection with them, a connection that was eroded by misinformation. Look what it says in verse 23. But I call God to witness against me, It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we worked with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. 
for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if, I, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. He explains that he changed his itinerary for their benefit. And again, this letter is the most revealing of Paul's heart. He was crushed. This is a guy who spreads, he goes and spreads the word, but his relationship, he was like Jesus. Jesus really loved people. And when he talked to the disciples about remaining in his love, it meant something because he really loved them and they knew it and they wanted to stay in it. Paul was the same way. He really, really cared about these people. He's being represented as not caring, but he, he was deeply, and you find that here. I mean, he's just, his heart broke. Um, the painful visit combined with the harsh letter had distressed Paul deeply. Their attitude mattered. He didn't wield his authority in this cavalier manner, he, it, the whole experience had been gut-wrenching, and it broke his heart. And he couldn't bring himself to make another sorrowful visit because he had just heard that they're not really responding too well. So that's why he ends up writing this letter, 2 Corinthians. He expressed his heart in order to fortify his connection the criticism eroded the bond he had formed with them. And again, that's why gossip is so dangerous. And by the way, when somebody spreads gossip about somebody, you don't have to, to call them on it. Call them on it if, if you can, but just don't spread it. Don't spread it. Gossip is dangerous and unnecessary and damaging. Um, you heard that story, didn't you? About I've told it before uh, from the middle is about this guy who uh, lived in the medieval village and and he went to somebody, went to a, uh, a clergy man and said, um, uh, you know what, I'd like to ask, get forgiveness from God. And he said, would you do? And he said, I gossip about somebody, I spread a rumor about somebody and or an, a, tr a truth that I didn't have any business sharing anyways he had done. And so what the, the clergyman said, okay, yeah, sure, this is what you do. I want you to take some feathers and I want you to put a feather on every threshold of every doorway in the village. And the guy said, okay. And so he did that and he went through the day and he took a feather and put a feather on every threshold on every doorway in the village and went back to the clergyman the next day and said, okay, I did what you asked. And then the clergyman said, okay, now what I want you to do is get the feathers back. And the guy said, I can't get my feathers back. And then he said, and neither can you get your gossip back. It's out there. So if somebody spreads something about somebody else, keep it to yourself. We'll pass it on. Gossip's deadly. Um, Paul expressed his heart, though, in order to fortify his connection. Um, 
having dealt with vertical and horizontal connections, he also deals and corrects the um, situation with the guy that made trouble. Look what it says in verse 6. For such a one, and this, this person who probably got up in one or several house churches and was very, very verbal and critical and caustic about Paul and so what Paul says for such a one the punishment this punishment by the majority is enough so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything anyone whom you forgive I also forgive indeed what I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In order to deal with the dangerous influence of the critic, Paul had encouraged them to excommunicate this guy. Excommunication in the time. What it meant is that the person was banished from meeting in the house churches that were the Christian house churches that Paul put into place. And apparently it was a very strong... Um, act. And this guy felt terrible. Um, There's some churches that practice this excommunication, and it usually happens when somebody does. And again, I've heard some cases, very painful. And frankly, um, a bad application. I've heard some stories, individuals who um, had affairs and are dragged up in front of churches and exposed to church discipline and made to confess before the church what they had done. And no, no. Do you know what Paul's concern is here? He's not concerned about somebody who is acting immorally. Now, is Paul concerned about immoral actions? Yeah. You know what Paul's really concerned about? You know what he's really concerned about? Somebody screwing around with the gospel. That's what Paul is really concerned about. Somebody who messes around, they might damage themselves. But somebody who is claiming to understand the good news and misrepresents it, starts to spread untrue things that impact that person's relationship with God. Paul understood that he was a steward. What Paul knew his responsibility was to take the message that God gave him and reflect that message as clearly as he could to those people that God had kind of brought within his sphere of influence. And the message was a message of the new covenant, of forgiveness, of God being helios with our unrighteousnesses and remembering our sins no more. You know what the message is, by the way? The message is good news. Good news. A lot of people think the gospel message is good deeds. Is the gospel message good deeds? Does it talk about good deeds? Yes. Is it at its heart good deeds? No. It's good news. Tell you what. If it gets into your brain, 
how much God cares for you and his promises toward you. If that gets into your brain, you know what it's going to do? You're going to find yourself doing good deeds, but it's not because you're going... (laughs) It will transform you. Good news transform you. What do you do with good news? What do you do with news? Do you obey it? Do you obey news? If I give you news, do you obey news? What do you do with news? You believe it. You believe news. And that's the good news. What are we supposed to do with the good news? We are supposed to believe it. Believe it. Uh, by the way, that's why we're... Paul, Paul is the one Jesus dispatched to help us Gentiles understand the good news. And that's why we'll, we're going through Second Corinthians. We're going to listen to Paul tell us the good news. And as a result, we'll know the good news a little bit better. We'll hear promises from him. And as our faith in God's promises becomes a little bit deeper, we'll find ourselves being changed a little bit from the inside. That's how it works. Um, What ended up happening then, Paul says about this guy, enough is enough, back off of him. It's interesting that at the time, uh, church discipline, again, some of you might, anybody ever hear of cases of church discipline? Anybody? We don't hear about it much anymore. Few. Um, But it doesn't have the same impact today. Because if you leave one church, what do you do? There's a zillion churches around, but at this time there wasn't. There were the places where Paul, Paul's disciples were, and that was about it, if you wanted to hear the truth. So it doesn't have the same impact anyways. Um, talks about, um, so we would not be outwitted by Satan if we're not ignorant of his designs. Satan, Paul, in Paul's understanding, is a divider and an accuser. What Satan tries to do He tries to put a wedge in between us and God with misinformation about God. That's what, and so what Paul saw himself as is somebody who reflected truth. And that's why he's concerned. Mary, come on up. There's a way, you know, we talked about, um, there's a couple different ways that we could usher change. Now, Mary is a really good person. This is Randy's sister, good person, but you know what? She's not perfect. She's McCoy, you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Whatever it was, he taught it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a couple ways that we could, I could have spiritual influence. So I say, okay, Mary, I'll tell you what. Mm, You know what? There's a lot of potential, but I see this problem and this problem and this problem in you. And you correct that problem, okay? You correct that problem, and then we'll be able to connect, okay? So you, ha- you correct that problem, you know what I mean? And then, then we'll be able to connect. That's correction, then connection. You know what that is? Law. That's law. There's another way we could do it, which is this. I'll tell you what, Mary. You know, there's some issues there. I'll tell you what. Let's forge a relationship. And in the context of this relationship, how about let's work on some of the things inside there? You know, this and that. So, you know, there's those issues. So let's connect. Let's have a relationship. And let's, in the context of the connection, let's correct some of the issues. Thanks, Mary. 
Would you agree that's a, that's a really different thing? That's the difference between the good news and what most religious news is. A lot of religion is change your behavior, correct your behavior, and you'll connect with God. Would you agree? Don't you hear that a lot? Correct your behavior, and you'll connect with God. You know what the truth is? God connects with us as we are. Connection. Within the context of that connection, our behavior becomes corrected. It's not correction, then connection. It's connection, then correction. Come on up and we'll sing a closing song. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for um, your purposes and promises that you have at the cross moved the operating system from correction and connection, which seems to be, it is the old covenant system. And you had sent Jesus so that there would be a new covenant in his blood, one that wasn't based on correction and connection, but connection, then correction. In Jesus' name, amen.